the bike trip taught me to slow down and meet people as an individual human being. And I hadn't been doing that before. I'd been seeing them as a, a sea of threats. And now they were like a big group of potential new friends. And that was huge. Hey, what's up? This is Kat. Welcome to the Joyride. Hey, what's up, Joyriders? This is Kat, and you're listening to episode number 34 of the Joyride podcast, where we celebrate women on bikes. On this episode, I talk with writer, artist, and bicycle tourist Olivia Round, who's currently in the process of writing a book about the real reasons why she cycled more than 5,000 miles from Oregon to Florida. Listen in as Olivia gets real about the uncomfortable motivation for going on tour, the Me Too movement, cultivating your intuition, and the one piece of essential gear, quote-unquote, that she didn't even bother to bring. You'll definitely want to check out the show notes at thejoyridepodcast.com forward slash 034. There you'll find links to everything we discussed, as well as some sweet artwork that Olivia designed available through her Indiegogo campaign. Friends, it's still only January, but there's already so much bike love going on the calendar that you need a napkin. We've got events in Portland, Seattle, and even Montana. Here are a few that are going on. If you happen to be in Portland and catch this in the few hours between when it's released and when Ovarian Psychos is playing at the Hollywood Theater on Sunday, January 28th, well, that's going on. And um, if you're in the Portland area and you're free tonight as you're listening to this, then um, you know, then check it out. Also, a few of us are meeting up at Ex Novo and then riding over from there. All are welcome. Come say hi. Next up, Friday, February 9th, get ready for another night of bike love stories. The 8th annual Live the Revolution will be at the Alberta Abbey in Portland. Live the Revolution is a bicycle-themed storytelling event that benefits the Street Trust and features four storytellers, three of whom are badass women in the Portland cycling, cycling community, including the Shiro of Black Girls Do Bike Portland and women bike role model Kionda McWhorters. Uh, tickets are $15 in advance, $17 at the door. Get them while they last. Can't wait. It was so much fun last year. Come say hi again. Okay, Seattle friends, the Stoked Spoke Adventure Series is beginning. Um, Stoked Spoke is a winter series of bicycle adventure presentations produced by Swift Industries, whose bags I love. They're just so beautiful. Um, this is a three-part adventure series that highlights bike camping destinations in this beautiful Cascadia region and beyond. Each evening highlights self-supported bike camping routes complete with maps, slideshow, and planning tips. Um, if you have a route that you want to share, there's a link in the show notes where you can apply with Swift. Tickets are $5 a person sold at the door at the Rhino Room. Dates are January 31st, so just a few days there, um, February 28th and March 28th. You've got plenty of time if you have some rad routes that you want to share with folks. Doors at 6.30, presentations 7 p.m. through 9 p.m. Worst day of the year ride happening here in Portland on February 11th. Um, Cycle Oregon's Joy Ride is happening June 9th. World Naked Bike Ride is on the calendar June 23rd. 
Cycle Oregon Weekender, July 14th through the 15th, which is the same weekend as Seattle to Portland. It always sells out uh, 10,000 riders, 200 plus miles. It's supposed to be a really top-notch ride. Um, And it's over a weekend, so that's a lot of riding. That's a a lot of fitness. Not quite on my calendar for July, maybe perhaps next year. Um, Something that is tentatively on my calendar, it should be on your calendar, maybe if this fits for you, perhaps if this is your thing, Uh, WTF Bike Explorer Summit happening in Whitefish, Montana. August 16th through the 19th. This rad group of folks are inviting women, trans, femme, and non-binary writers, riders, and also writers probably. I mean, we're creative folks, right? Um, Out to get rad and be radical and shred the patriarchy in Whitefish, Montana. Um, Also looks like badass woman on a bike herself, Lael Wilcox might even be there. That's going to be a good one, folks. Again, check out the show notes at thejoyridepodcast.com forward slash 034 to look at all the links and everything for all of these events, or you can go to thejoyridepodcast.com forward slash calendar to look at all of this in beautiful calendar grid format. Mm. Okay, friends, I really loved having this conversation with Olivia. Um, She has just got so much energy, and I can't wait to read what she's got coming out. So, Without further ado, let's meet Olivia Round. Olivia Round, welcome to the Joyride. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Woo! And where where is here, by the way? Where are you? I'm I currently live on an island near Seattle. And is that where you learned to ride a bike? No, I grew up in Ketchikan, Alaska on a different island, and my mom was my first hero on two wheels. She was one of very few people in my hometown who rode a bicycle, um, and she would use, she used to ride to town eight miles and back, and she was mother of two, so she put us in a little carrier and toted us behind her bike, and it was a lot of fun, and so I wanted to be I wanted to be just like her when I grew up. Um, So I I got a bike in college when I went to school in Oregon near Portland and just a junky Craigslist bike. And, um, but I really fell in love with how much freedom it gave me because I didn't have a car at the time. And then I got this wild hair to do a bike ride across the United States. And I got a much better bike still on Craigslist. And that's when I really fell in love with um, cycling. And even more than that, I think I fell in love with who I am on a bicycle and the side of me that is satisfied by adventuring on two wheels. So that's how I fell in love with it. Mm. Um, tell me about, you said you fell in love with who you are on a bicycle. Like, tell me more about that. Yeah. So I, I'd grown up, um, having great adventures in the Alaskan wilderness. Uh, I grew up in a really a lush rainforest region of Southeast Alaska. And we did a lot of backpacking and I had some friends who had boats. So we'd go explore different islands, but there wasn't a lot of bicycling. It wasn't really a culture there. Um, it's a really wet place to live. The roads are very narrow and, um, there was no bike shop in town. So it was hard to get a culture going cause it's always 
not always, but it's often pretty miserable weather to ride in. So really intrepid, hardcore people would be on their bicycles, but everybody else would choose cars. So um, I knew that I was an adventurous person and that I liked exploring the world. Um, And the bicycle for me is the perfect pace because I get just a little bit frustrated sometimes with the slowness of walking. But cars are... Uh, <laughs> I am a really bad driver. I joke that that's one of the reasons that I ride a bike everywhere is because I am dangerous behind the wheel. I just don't seem to understand how to operate a huge machine on highways. Part of that is growing up in on an island with only, you know, a two-lane road. I never had to change lanes in my life until I went to college. So well, where was I going with that? <laughs> um, not, yeah, just but like not having a car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bicycling is perfect. It's just fast enough to feel exhilarating, and it's just slow enough that you can see every blade of grass, every tree, every person that you pass by. So it's this really intimate way to move through the world, and I feel like it's the perfect pace for my body and my brain. Totally resonating with me. Um, (laughs) So, okay, so tell me about your your wild hair, your trip across the country. And uh, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, I'll give you the long uncensored version. Oh, please do. <laughs> oh, and actually, I want to ask you right before then, was this your first like tour? Or you it know was. what I mean? Like, did you do overnights before that? So, you know, as you're, yeah. as you're describing it, tell me a little bit about like your prep, <laughs> your prep process too. Yeah. Um, so it was my first tour. Um, I did a couple just one night overnights to kind of prepare myself for the tour. But I I had a hunch that you can never really prepare for that kind of adventure. You just go and you become who you need to be on the road. Um, so I definitely recommend being very gentle with yourself the first couple weeks of a big adventure like that because your body is trying to adjust to you know, this new activity that you're doing and this new way of living on the road and sleeping somewhere new every night. Um, so I, I didn't do much training. I did a lot of research, but I didn't do much training. I really just let myself train at, when I started the trip. Um, as far as the inspiration for the trip goes, um, that's one of the most commonly asked questions I get. And it's the one I lie about the most often, <laughs> or I have in the past anyway. Um, I used to lie about the reason why I did the trip and it feels really good these days to, um, tell my story more honestly and tell people the truth about why I was out there. So the long story is that, um, ever since I was a little kid, I had a pretty deep seated fear of men and more specifically of sexual violence. And it's interesting and it's kind of hard to convey sometimes because I was never actually assaulted or abused or anything like that growing up. Um, But I had this fear that I would be. And because that fear is very legitimate and very real in our culture and in our world, um, people, when I expressed to them that I was afraid, you know, like I tell my mom, mom, I'm kind of scared of men. And she'd be like, good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, the, the feedback I was getting was that, yes, this world is scary and you should be worried and you should be careful. And that's good advice to a point. But I, 
I was never diagnosed, but after reading the definition of what a phobia is, you know, a really um, seemingly baseless overreaction to a stimulus, I did have a phobia of men. I really didn't trust them, was really frightened that they could turn on you at any moment. You know, we're, we're taught stranger danger as kids and that it could be anybody and we don't know what a rapist looks like. And, you know, I understand that all of that is coming from the right place and we're trying to keep our children safe and we're trying to make this world better. And I think that raising awareness is a huge part of it. But we do need to also empower our young people, our children to say, hey, you'll know when something's going on. Let's cultivate your intuition. Mm -hmm. You know, let's let's empower you to assess your surroundings, say hello to people give them a chance. But if you get a weird vibe, you're empowered to walk away or scream for help or whatever you have to do. You know, there's a step we're missing because <laughs> when you're terrified of half of the human population, it's debilitating. I mean, it got so bad. I was scared all through high school. I never dated anybody, um, turned down every slow dance, wouldn't hug guys, wouldn't go on dates. I mean, I was just terrified. And there were only a few exceptions to that rule. Like my dad was totally fine. My brother was totally fine. And then my adopted uncle, Jimmy, like those were the three safe males in my life and everybody else was suspect. So I finally got my first boyfriend at the end of high school and he really changed my life because he just showed me that, you know, you could trust somebody and you could kiss them and you could enjoy it. And that was great. And then I left my hometown and went to college and had another boyfriend. And this one, I actually, um, I really connected with him in my pain. He could really see that I was somebody who was afraid. And for the first time in my life, I didn't want to hide my fear from someone because I had been keeping this under wraps for years. Because really, who wants to talk about rape or sexual abuse? I mean, certainly not a kid, you know? I didn't want to talk to people about what was scaring me. I was afraid that I was right. You know, I was afraid that this was the world I lived in and people were that scary and I didn't really want to come to terms with it. So I sort of shoved it down and I put on a happy face and, but in the back of my mind, I was scared all the time. So having this new boyfriend in college and just being, you know, a new person in college and being out of my hometown and trying new things. And I realized that I really needed to come to terms with this fear in some way because it was getting so bad that if I was walking down the street alone and there was a man walking towards me, even in broad daylight, I would cross the street to the other side, <laughs> the other sidewalk, like just so I wouldn't have to walk past him because I was scared. I mean, that's crazy. That's nuts. So um, I, yeah, I went on a solo adventure to South America for three months because I wanted to see who I was you know, away from my boyfriend, away from my friends. I wanted to see like, okay, if no one is here to protect you, they're like, can you still exist, Olivia? And I could, and that was great. So I came back and I thought I was cured. Um, I was like, oh, I'm not afraid of men anymore. You know, I, I caught all these, I was hitchhiking in Patagonia and I got picked up by locals and spoke broken Spanish with them for a four hour truck ride, like great unprecedented progress on my fear. However, I came back to Oregon and realized I had only conquered my fear of like 
men with brown skin who spoke Spanish, <laughs> they were okay and not scary, but the rest of the population was still terrifying to me. And that's kind of a goofy thing. Um, so I decided that I needed to explore my bravery in my own country. I needed an epic American journey across this landscape to get a grip on who I am and what this country is. And so I decided to ride my bike across the U.S. And that's the long, hairy version of the inspiration for that. So what was the lie that you told? Did you lie? Like, did you tell other... Did you know that that was what you needed to do and but you t gave other people a different reason I did yeah I, I would get you know just anybody would ask me as I was biking across the country why are you doing this and I'd say well you know my sister lives in Florida so I'm going to visit my sister which is true I got to see my sister in Florida or I'd say oh I want to see the country or I want to challenge myself you know but I didn't look strangers in the eye and say, I'm doing this because I'm terrified mm -hmm. of rape. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I kind of wish I had, but I think it would have been really uncomfortable for a lot of people. But what an amazing um, conversation starter or ender, depending. <laughs> this trip was in 2011, right? Yes. So tell me a little bit, um, and I have, you know, a bunch of other questions around that, but I'm curious about what the past five or six years has been like, I know you're in the process of, you know, writing about this trip. Um, so, you know, what has that time been like? And when did you decide to sort of like come out as I, I did this because I was terrified? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I've, I've continued to be pretty nomadic and adventurous. I've gone on more bike tours, um, but that remains the longest one I've ever done. Um, and I've, I've had a, a few more boyfriends and each one has taught me amazing things about myself and um, helped me heal in different ways. And I knew that I wanted to write a book about the trip even before I left. Um, but I, I will confess that the book that I had in mind was very different from the one I'm writing now. Um, I wanted to write a book about, <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> I wanted to write a book about my trip, but I wanted to make it sound like I learned things and there was a, and there was a trajectory, like a character arc that made a lot of sense and that I was a very reasonable person. And, <laughs> and, um, I'm, you know, I, I attempted to start writing that book after my trip. I, I moved to Alaska with my boyfriend at the time and we lived in a cabin together in, you know, the remote area and I just tried to write the book and it, it wouldn't work. You know, I, I wrote great stuff. I had great stories, but there was an element of honesty that I, I wasn't willing to put in my work. It was just too fresh. Mm. I couldn't write about how I almost cheated on my boyfriend. I couldn't write about, you know, struggling with um, sexual desire for other people while I traveled or, you know, trying to figure out my own sexuality. And and so I wasn't able to be as honest as I am able to be now. <laughs> and even now, all these years later, it, it is a struggle. I mean, to read back on your journals from when I was, I was just a different person. I've grown so much. And it really is an amazing experience to read back on this stuff because sometimes I just can't believe how far I've come. But, <laughs> um, but it's a really good story. And, 
And sometimes I wonder, like, do I even need to write this book anymore? This isn't who I am. But I think that's why it's so important to write the book is because there wasn't any book like this when I was growing up. I really wanted to hear somebody say, hey, I'm afraid too. But you know what? This doesn't rule our lives. And, and it's okay to be afraid even if nothing ever happened to you. Your fear is still legitimate. Um, that was one of the hardest parts of having this fear growing up is that it was, um, it was baseless. You know, it, it, the first thing people ask me to this day, you know, when they read like, oh, my poor mom or my friends, you know, they're reading my website and they read my backstory a little bit and they're like, you were afraid of sexual assault? What happened to you? That's the first question. What happened to you? And I had that question growing up as a kid also, and I thought that I had to have an answer, that you weren't allowed to just feel fear. You weren't allowed to just be afraid um, for no reason, quote unquote, when really you can. And a lot of us have fear of something that's never happened to us, but we're so worried that it will. And so I think that's why the story is so important to share is because even though I've grown and healed so much and this story isn't necessarily applicable to who I am today, it's so important to chart our progress so other people can have a story to take inspiration and hope from. I could have really used that as a little girl. So I'm writing the book now that I wanted when I was a kid. (laughs) <laughs> in the hopes that it'll help somebody else. But even if it doesn't, at least the seven-year-old inside of me will be really happy and satisfied. That's probably one of the best reasons to write something, frankly. <laughs> I don't want <laughs> to like kind of diverge off I, I've um, too far in that direction. But, um, you know, reading Anne Lamott um, and just like reading Elizabeth Gilbert between shitty first drafts and big magic um you know like you write to you write like sort of to map your own progress sort of to you know to explore where where was this starting point and where are all the places where I turned and transitioned and you know our own narrative arc so I I think that's fantastic and I'm really excited to you know to read what you're writing definitely as a writer and as um as someone who just finished ghostwriting a memoir, uh, you know, I'm really curious as to how you're going to, to structure that and whatnot. Um, oh, thank you. You know how it goes. There's a hundred ways to write about one thing. And uh, sometimes so, you have to do all the drafts before you find the one that you like. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you sort of like you're feeling for the edges of it. And, um, you know, there's a lot there in terms of writing. I'm wondering a little bit, when you said something about cultivating your intuition, and this really resonates with me, especially as we're in this culture where we're just sort of staring at our phones a lot. Um, I think that I was um, like a year and a half ago came very close to being maybe mugged um, in daylight, like at like 11am on a Sunday uh, in a pretty populated area. But because I because I was like really aware, and actually I credit my now I credit my ADD for this because I was super aware. Um, I think that was the moment that sort of saved me in terms of, it probably would have been like my bike and my phone. I think it would have not been, it wouldn't have been violent, but still. Um, I had a moment where I was like, hey, everybody like look up because if I had just been staring at my phone and like with the earbuds in, 
I would not have known what have been what would have happened potentially. So um, tell me a little bit about cultivating your intuition and what that process was like for you as you traveled across the country. Yeah. <clears throat> cultivating my intuition was a messy process and I was very paranoid and um, <laughs> trying to find good descriptive words, but maybe I'll just tell you a story. So one thing about being afraid for so long is that it builds a lot of tension in your body. And it got to the point where if I had any excuse to feel righteous rage at somebody, I really wallowed in it. Like I basked in it. I was so excited to finally have an outlet to put all this energy mm which means that if I ever felt threatened while I traveled alone, I would just unleash <laughs> a tirade of angry, angry energy. I would, you know, I might yell or I might just have this epic stare down or I might punch them or push them away. Um, and these instances didn't happen very often, which is the point of the book that, you know, 99% of people are amazing and want to help you and are just wonderful. And some people say the wrong thing and make themselves sound threatening when they really don't mean to. It's amazing how often people say really stupid stuff to strangers, especially women traveling alone. And, um, and now I take the time to stop them and say, hey, do you realize how threatening that sounds? You know, when, you, when you're interrogating me, if anyone else is with me and telling me that I'm beautiful, do you understand how threatening that is? Or are you just you know, oblivious. Can you a tell lot of me, the time, I want to hear more about, I'm sorry to interrupt you, <laughs> but like, I definitely want to hear that story for sure. Oh gosh. It happens all the time. And remember that part of this is that I am ultra sensitive. So things that most people say that wouldn't bother other women bother me. So I, you know, have that as a, as a caveat. Um, but when you're traveling alone, your number one job, in my opinion, is to keep yourself safe. And it's a full-time job, like you said. It requires so much uh, um, surveillance, <laughs> so much vigilance. Mm -hmm. And you fall into bed exhausted every night because your brain has been working so hard to take into account your surroundings and the people around you and trying to read situations. Um, and I find that when I travel with someone else now, it's so relaxing. I mean, you have this other person to bounce ideas off of and and to be there with you. Um, but traveling solo, though it's so hard, is really important. And I think especially for women, because we're, we're trained from a young age to be pleasant and generous and nurturing. And that is all good stuff. But it's really important for us to be able to handle ourselves and to yell at someone or push them away. So one example is... Um, and this is this is one of my favorite parts in the book, actually, is in Montana, there was a gentleman who stopped by a bike shelter that I was staying in, it's this great small town, um, and they erected like a bike camp for cycling tourists because thousands of people ride their bikes across the U.S. every summer on this particular route. And so uh, this small town decided, hey, if we get them to stay the night here, they'll pay for the laundromat and they'll buy food and restaurants. And they were right. Like they had so much cycling tourism after they built a shelter for us to stay in. So I was at this shelter and this man stopped by and I was just getting a really weird vibe from him. He was just strange and like very complimenting, but also manipulative, you know, just trying to 
oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, you should come have dinner with me. Oh, don't say no. I know that you have to say that, but you really should come have dinner with me. I mean, just ridiculous. And I got so angry. And, you know, I just stood in the middle of the floor and stared at him and kept saying, go away. I don't want you here. I dropped some F-bombs, you know, and just felt like there were lasers coming out of my eyes. I was so mad and so, (laughs) so indignant. I felt like, I felt like I could murder him. And, and I liked that feeling. I liked feeling powerful after feeling powerless for so long. It was liberating. Um, And I'm really glad that I've never killed anybody. And I certainly don't plan to. (laughs) And it's gotten a lot better since then. Um, my reaction to threat. But I think um, it's one of the things I'm exploring in my book and in my blog, um, interviewing all these women on bicycles is this double-edged sword of our vulnerability. You know, because we're vulnerable or weak, it also makes us really strong because we get so mad or we're capable of getting so mad um, and surprising people with our strength because they're not expecting us to be strong. And so I found that when I've been threatened on my solo travels, um, and, and maybe I'm being too flippant about it, but it's never been a problem. The minute I unleash the angry Olivia on them, they just they just leave right away. It's so uncomfortable. They're just gone. <laughs> and I really like knowing that. It gives me a lot of confidence. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for standing in your power, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, yeah. I, th- I think people can feel that, too, Um when you're really, when you're there and you're in that alignment. Mm -hmm. It's so curious, sort of this dichotomy that you're describing between being afraid and yet sort of also being capable of flipping out, uh, which is, you know, that's so interesting. Um, Did that, did that just sort of like pop up at any point? Was it always like that? I know you drew that correlation between you know, the tension and fear and then sort of uncoiling and unleashing, which uh, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. But was it always like that? Or was there a certain point, like when you got to Montana? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, where was was that like for you? Was that a transition or what? Um, It it had always been like that for me, even as a little girl. Um, You know, I'd feel threatened and I'd lash out. And if they didn't go away, I'd lash out way harder and then they'd leave. You know, usually it only took two times. Um, But I I always had that store of tension that I was looking for an outlet to release Um, to the point where I will admit to you, um, when I was in college, I fantasized about being assaulted because I wanted so badly to beat up that guy. (laughs) I wanted so badly to be able to just you know, express this violence that I'd been harboring in my own body for so long. Mm. Um, and I no longer feel that way. And that was a huge part of my healing process, um, to, to allow myself to just go ahead and like, you know what, release that anywhere, release it somewhere, release it. It's over. It's, it's not here anymore. Um, but that moment in Montana was a turning point because that was, he was the guy who stayed the longest, you know, I had I had pushed away other people who had been trying me trying to harm me, but they left after like, you know, the first or second tidal wave of my rage. Whereas this guy stayed longer, and and so I had more time to release my rage and also more time to start feeling really afraid. 
because maybe he wasn't going to leave. Maybe this was the first time that someone was actually going to hurt me because he just seemed out of his mind. Um, which of course, you know, makes me nervous because I don't know if he can be reasoned with or if he's going to react to my rage the way everybody else has. His brain is working differently. Um, so Montana felt amazing because I wasn't sure if I was going to get out of that situation. And when he left, I had dumped so much of my anger that I felt lighter for the first time in my life. Like he had given me, he was sort of an angel in a way. He gave me the opportunity to express so much anger that I could actually start getting rid of some of it. Um, and I really appreciate him for that. And it was also just a funny scene because of the crazy things he said. So it makes for a good story too. <laughs> Sounds really cathartic. Oh yeah, it was great. <laughs> Olivia, you described as, you know, since the time of being a little girl, having this sort of irreconcilable feeling of fear or a phobia, you know, with, with men or, or male-bodied people. I wonder a little bit, do you, do you think that some of the Me Too phenomenon that's occurred over the past few months, is does something like that help, in your opinion, to feed that phobia for girls and women, or is it helping to perhaps exercise the demons that, you know, that we need to, um, find our power and find that. Yeah. Yeah. Find that power. What do you think? That's a, yeah, that is an awesome question. Um, I think it has to do both and that's a natural part of the evolution that we're seeing, um, with gender equality and, people being healthier, happier humans inside of whatever body they have. Um, and so I, I think that the Me Too stories that are coming out, some of them are terrifying, and it could definitely feed um, people's phobia. However, I think there's so much emphasis on strength and women um, coming together in a sisterhood way um, that makes us capable of overcoming anything, no matter how scary it is. And sisterhood is something that I had so much of when I was a kid. I had a very tight tribe of girlfriends. Um, we did everything together. We had sleepovers practically every night, definitely every weekend. Um, and I collected women around me because they helped me feel, you know, I loved them. I loved my girlfriends and I loved being in a tribe and being understood, being seen. Um, and I, I sought from them companionship, which made it really painful in high school when they started being interested in boys or girls. But when they started having romantic relationships that took them away from our slumber parties and kind of, you know, started to put their energy elsewhere, um, it made me really sad because I I, I missed them. I wanted them back because they helped insulate me from this world that was scary to me, which was the world of, of male-bodied people. So I think sisterhood is essential in overcoming these things. Um, and every sister is different. You know, every one of us brings a different kind of comfort or sass or advice or anger to the table. And, uh, you know, when you share this many stories at once of pain— it is a really hard time. You know, the, the Me Too movement is a, a brutal, beautiful, essential thing that's happening. And I really appreciate all the women who are sharing their stories. Um, and it definitely helped inspire me to share mine. And I think the more we share the stories, the, the, 
the more powered we feel and the less power the perpetrators have. Um, because speaking out was something that we've been discouraged to do for so long. And it's the only thing that'll really get us anywhere is speaking out because I've had, you know, it's wonderful. I've had men in their fifties come up to me or, or write to me online and say, I had no idea how hard this was. You know, I'm not a woman and I never knew what your experiences were. And I didn't know that this was difficult. And I'm just so frustrated that you had to go through this. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, son, thank you. Like, thank you for taking the time to read a story and, and think about it and be like, wow, I didn't know that was going on. It's amazing to me that they didn't know what was going on. But hey, I get it. Like we've been we've been encouraged not to share these stories for so long. And now people are getting to know. Yeah, I just I'm super happy about it. <laughs> I'm really happy. I'm so honored to be alive at this time of the Me Too movement. And I know it's only going to get better from here. Um, yeah. Um, so I want to, I want to transition to asking you a couple practical bikey questions, but I want to, um, honor this with one more, you know, honor this trip with, uh, one more question, which is describe in a few words, a few adjectives, who you were before you set out on that journey and then who you feel like you were at the end. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to fail at the few words part, <laughs> but writers. <laughs> maybe I'll try at the end to like sum it up again. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, actually, I, I mean, we can, we can keep it for the end if you want. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, wait? this is good. This is good. No, you gotta get me. <laughs> what do you got? What do you got? Um, so I've been struggling with a title for the book and I got all excited about this title, Miss America, how I got over my fear of boys by biking across the country. Um, which I wanted to be, I wanted it to be like the sassy, attention-getting, funny title that sort of encaptured what happened. And now I'm falling out of love with that title because it is too linear. I mean, the cause and effect of like, I rode my bike across the country and everything was fine after that. Mm. That is just not what happened. It, it was just one step on a really complicated journey of healing that, <clears throat> you know, that was a big leap of progress, but the next few years, there were lots of step backwards. And so um, I want to be more honest in my memoir, even more honest than I already am being, um, that it wasn't a fix-all and, and I shouldn't even present it that way as a joke. So, um, but, but, but before I left on the trip, um, I was just as afraid on the last day of my bike adventure as I was on the first day. But it set into motion this feeling of strength and empowerment and most importantly, this feeling of love for mankind, for humans, for male-bodied people. I just had had so many generous strangers and so many wonderful interactions that I was starting to see men as people, as individuals. Mm. And that's the most important thing. And it goes back to that following your intuition thing. You know, not all men are scary. Not all women are safe. But each person deserves your attention to see what kind of energy they're giving off and if you like being around them. And it really just comes down to that. It's kind of basic. Like, Do you like the vibe they're sending or do you not? 
Do you want to be closer to them or do you want to be farther away? It's real simple. And we can teach kids that because each each human being is worth your attention and you don't have to be friends with everybody. You can if you feel safe to, but if you're traveling alone, it's much more important to make a quick decision based on vibe. And I know that I've gotten my assessment wrong many times, but I've never regretted it. And I usually err on the side of caution. I usually just run away the minute I get a weird feeling from somebody. Um, but the bike trip told me to taught me to slow down and meet people as an individual human being. And I hadn't been doing that before. I'd been seeing them as a, a sea of threats. And now they were like a big group of potential new friends. And that was huge. That's really beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I'd like to know from your from the overnights that you did before you set out on your tour um, to your last day um, on the bike. Actually, where did you, where was your like finishing point? Um, I rode my bike starting in Forest Grove, Oregon, where I was going to school. Um, technically Tillamook because I did a, a little overnight trip to the coast. So it could oh, be a coast to coast trip. Good for you. I was, <laughs> when you said Forest Grove, I was like, oh, please. You're so close <laughs> to the coast. Yeah, so awesome. Close. <laughs> cool. No, I, I started at the coast um, and I rode my bike to St. Augustine, Florida on the Atlantic coast. Wow. But the technical finish was back at my sister's house in Panama City Beach, Florida. So what was the mileage on that and how long did it take you? Uh, it was just over 5,000 miles um, at the end. I think my bike computer stopped working or I forgot to write down, but I remember that I hit 5,000 um, within the last five days in Florida. So that was exciting. That's cool. Yeah. And um, if you squished every single riding day together uh, without any rest days or vacation or anything, it was probably three months or three and a half months of riding. But um, because I stopped and visit, visited with friends and family along the way, I was gone from August 1st to uh, Thanksgiving, I think. So, how many? Was that like almost four months? No, five, almost five months, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I didn't go back to Forest Grove um, until after Christmas because my parents came down and we spent Christmas together. But yeah, yeah. So I was gone. I was gone from my people for five and a half or six months. But the the bike trip itself was more like four and a half. Yeah, heck of a heck of a trip there, Olivia. So what I want to know, I'm so curious, how much did your gear and packing change from those first overnights until you, you know, like landed in Panama City? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> sorry, I cracked myself up remembering uh, when I was getting ready for the trip, um, I knew how to pedal. That's it. I knew how to pedal. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's so <laughs> and awesome. And use the brakes. <laughs> I didn't know anything else. And I was in a desperate, stressed out frenzy to find the the gear I needed to do this trip. So I read all kinds of books from the library about bicycle touring. Um, I I found people who had bike toured before. They were all men. And I interviewed them, you know, I'd invite them out to coffee and sit them down at the coffee shop. One guy had like this big gray beard 
<laughs> sat with him for like an hour and a half and just interrogated him on everything about bikes. And, um, you know, and, and so it was through this, this kind of researching that I decided I needed, you know, an entire repair kit and extra spokes and like chain link tools and all this stuff I had no idea how to use. And I packed it all into my bike and it probably added like 10 extra pounds of gear. Um, and I schlepped that stuff all the way to Florida and never used a single thing. I got exactly two flats on the entire tour, two flat tires and 5,000 miles. And one of the flat tires was on the last day of the tour on Christmas Eve, right before my sister's house. And so she had to come pick me up and I didn't get to ride the last 15 miles to her house. Like that was the anticlimactic end of my tour was I got a flat tire and got a lift. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't, I, I tour very differently now than I did then. Um, I, I hardly bring any repair equipment with me. I worked at a bike shop this past year in Hawaii, not as a mechanic, just as a sales girl, but I learned a lot more about bikes and what happens to them and how you can prevent things. And so I've just decided to, to roll in the light department of touring, um, and just call a bike shop when I need them because it's really funny to carry, carry a bunch of gear that I didn't know how to use. Um, I carried a ton of water with me. I drank like a fish the whole way on my bike and water is so heavy as you know. Um, but gosh, when I didn't have it, I just felt crazy. Yeah. There's like a fear I think that sets in when you're, you know, when you get down to that last gulp or two gulps of water in your bottle and you're, it's just, yeah, there's, um, I think erring on the side of having more is probably ideal. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess unless you're running like bottles with filters, but let's not digress too much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so pretty much I, I had the same stuff in my bag at the end of the tour that I did at the beginning, but I've learned a lot since then. <laughs> so what, so obviously you're stripping away like repair gear, but tell me a little bit about, you know, is there anything else in there that you noticed in terms of like your cooking equipment, like your kitchen setup or uh, any of that that you recall? Oh yeah. I forget how weird I am. So I didn't bring any cooking equipment. <laughs> really? I didn't have, <laughs> nope, I didn't have a stove. Um, I didn't have anything. I bought one Tupperware sandwich container halfway through the tour because I wanted to be able to carry around leftovers. Um, I eat really weird food when I travel alone because no one's there to tell me that it's weird. And, and I saved a lot of money by eating weird stuff. So I would just live off of (laughs) PBJ and Uh carrots and cliff bars. And I just never cooked and I hardly ate out either. So I was just eating crackers and cheese or um, like those little baby bell cheeses with the wax coating. Those tend to keep, for at least a day. And I did weird things. Like I bought, you know, 15 pounds of fresh oranges when I was in the South and just hauled those around for a day and a half <laughs> until they were gone. <laughs> oh, I, um, I'm definitely not someone to write like a biking cookbook. I, I totally failed. Well, I think that's, I'm mean, well, not a cookbook, right? Cause no cooking, but yeah, there's <laughs> definitely, you could write like the touring without cooking. Uh, you yeah. know, like how, how you experience touring without cooking. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, you it definitely kept of, things lighter. Well, except for the oranges, but yeah. Right. Like you, it's a trade-off, I guess, a little bit with having 10 pounds of repair equipment that you didn't need. <laughs> At least you didn't cart around a stove and fuel too. So, um, 
So what else is on your bike it list? Do you have some more tours planned? Um, I don't actually, my, my main adventure right now is writing the book. Um, oh, but I am really excited to do a, a book tour by bicycle. Oh yeah. Um, and I definitely want to come visit you on that bike tour cause it's oh, definitely yeah, going to sure. go through the Northwest and Portland. And, um, that's going to be so fun because I'll be able to connect with all these women that I've been interviewing or been interviewed by and, and just really be able to meet people and share my book with them. And so I'm totally looking forward to that, but it might be, you know, a year or two away uh, as far as finishing the book goes. Um, so that's probably my most excited thing I, I want to do right now. Also, bike touring with girlfriends is so much fun, and I haven't gotten to do enough of that. And I really look forward to doing some kind of Oregon Coast trip with all my my lady friends down in Oregon. Um, I'm, I'm really ready to invite other people along for the ride. I needed a lot of alone time in my early 20s and a lot of soul searching and solo travels. But wow, these days, I'm just so excited to have my tribe with me and uh, to have people to share the adventure with. And I just feel really comfortable with that. I feel really good in a way I haven't before. So that's fun. If you, I'll ask you this, which is typically something I would save for the end, but that has inspired the question of, um, you know, if you could ride your bike any place in the world, you know, with anybody living or dead, who would you, where would you go? Who would you ride with, etc.? Oh my goodness. I don't even know how to handle that question. I feel so excited. Okay. I would, yep. I would, (laughs) I would ride my bicycle through like the, the Austrian countryside because my mom's side of the family is Austrian immigrants to the United States. I would ride through the Austrian countryside um, with my great grandparents, like my great Austrian grandparents, and they'd be wearing lederhosen and and they would pack the most delicious like fresh churned butter and homemade bread for us to eat while we went and that would be such a magical ride (laughs) that's super cute um hey i really like there's two things here what am i going to ask you about because i'm staring at both questions at the same time come on brain you got to make a choice (laughs) um hey i really like your indiegogo hummingbird bike image. Tell me about the Indiegogo and tell me about, I'm going to post up, you know, a link to that, of course, and this image that I'm just so in love with, but tell me the inspiration for your hummingbird bike image here. Woo! I am so excited about my Indiegogo campaign. Uh, Ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to design fashion clothing that nobody would want to wear, just like super feathery, glittery, and in terrible taste. That's totally my style. And so I get to combine my desire to be a fashion designer with the fact that I'm an artist and I love doing pen and ink drawings. I've been working on this set of, of drawings of women as birds on bicycles. And the reason for that is a lot of the female cyclists I've been interviewing have talked about the joy and freedom of bicycling and how it feels like flying. So I started drawing a series of portraits called Feels Like Flying. And the hummingbird one is of a a road cyclist, and she's going really fast. And I love the hummingbird because it's small, but very mighty for its size. Um, It has a terrible sweet tooth, just like me. 
And even though it's going really fast, it's attracted to bright colors and it always stops to smell the flowers, which I feel like is a huge part of cycling is that you love that speed and motion, but it's so easy to pull over and enjoy any view or any roadside attraction or stop and say hi to a person. It's much easier to pull over than it is in a car. And I feel like hummingbirds are really good at that. Um, I have a couple other drawings I'm working on. One is of a a mountain biker, you know, coming down a mountain and she's an eagle. There's another one that's a mother towing her two children in a bike trailer. The mom is a, a robin and then the bike trailer is a nest with these two little helmeted heads poking out that look like eggs. So that's going to be part of the Indiegogo campaign as well. I'm going to launch these designs separately. Um, so yeah, anyone can donate to the Indiegogo campaign. You can donate as little as $5 um, and be entered to win you know, a free tote bag or a free t-shirt. So you still can get something for your donation. Or you can spend $30 and get the t-shirt of your choice or 100% organic cotton canvas tote bag. Um, so there's some really cool swag that I'm offering because writing a memoir uh, doesn't pay anything at first. And I got to support myself while I'm writing. And I'm really excited to share my designs with the world. And I hope they inspire people as much as these women I've been interviewing have inspired me. I just really love celebrating women and bicycles. And um, it's so much fun to let my artwork do that for me. So yeah, donate and thank you. (laughs) Well, you know, celebrating women and bicycles is totally up my alley. I think this hummingbird image is so cute. I'm going to share it out and I can't wait to, you know, see the other designs that you're doing and share it out with listeners because I feel like it's a really good fit. If If you're listening to this show, you're probably into women and bikes. So that's awesome. Amen. Amen. So, um, yeah, share it everywhere. Share as much as you want. Yeah. Share early, share often. Uh, so, <laughs> so you've been doing these cool interviews, which I like. And um, what I want to ask, wh- where did that come from? The inspiration to, to interview uh, gals, lady cyclists? So it came actually from me getting really stuck in my own head. I've been writing a memoir, and which feels like an exercise in required narcissism. I just have to think about myself yeah, all the time. a great deal of navel-gazing <laughs> involved in memoir writing. I, I have to look at photos of myself and read my journal and think about how I feel and write about how I feel. And, oh my gosh, sometimes I just feel so stuck in myself. And uh, that's hard for me because I grew up being very... Uh, altruistic and very giving. I volunteered at a lot of nonprofits and I was always doing work in the community and empowering other people. And um, now is the time in my life for me to really get selfish and self-centered. And I'm trying to lean into it and embrace it, but it's hard sometimes. It's really hard. I get tired of my own name. I get tired of my own experiences. And so interviewing other women is such a breath of fresh air. I love celebrating them and sharing their stories they help pull me out of my own experience. And at the same time, they help make my experience even more meaningful because I know that I have, um, that I'm able to empower them and to, to, and that they inspire me. And it just builds such a great community for me. I'm on the computer alone for multiple hours a day. And if I'm working on someone else's interview, it just really helps me feel connected to my sisters. And I love that. Heard it. 
<laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show for that reason. I yeah. really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, it's so awesome. So one of the questions that I am, that I love that you've been asking and that I'm totally stealing from you is what makes you a better cyclist? <laughs> Steal away. I yeah. love stealing. <laughs> we're, well, let's call it borrowing. I mean, we're all just iterating on each other, right? So oh, yeah. anyway. Oh, yeah. anyway. <laughs> um, what makes me a better cyclist? Well, full disclosure, I haven't gotten on my bike in probably two weeks. I hurt my foot. And it just took the momentum out of my bicycling and my foot is perfectly healed now and I need to get back on my bike. Um, what makes me a better cyclist is, um, my shadow side. I, I can be a very tightly wound person. I can get very, um, I can get gloomy, especially in the winter. And the best medicine for me always is to get outside and play. And the bicycle is like an instant remedy for that. You know, it, it takes a little bit of coordinating for me to grab some friends and go to the park and throw a Frisbee, but it takes no coordination whatsoever for me to grab my bike, hop on it and ride around the block. And I do feel like I'm playing. I, I start making like Star Wars laser shooting noises pew, 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 when I'm riding around <laughs> feeling like I'm in some kind of epic video game or just watching the birds flying above me and... Um, I love when children pass me on their bikes. I just get so stoked about this next generation of people on bicycles. And I love seeing that relationship happening early on. So um, what makes me a better cyclist is, is actually something that I've, um, how do you say it? The side of myself that I find hard to live with is actually part of what makes me a great cyclist. It's because I need to go ride in order to have, um, good mental health. And so I actually love my shadow side because it pushes me to go ride a bike. And then I always have so much fun and I feel tons better coming back home. So good. Um, Olivia, where can folks follow your journey and like all your work and the stuff you're doing in the world? Yeah. Um, all roads lead to my website. Uh, it's, it's just my name, oliviaround.org. If you type in oliviaround.com, you will go to the same place. Um, I also have a Facebook. I'm Olivia Round. Uh, Twitter, I think I'm Olivia Round also on Twitter. So you can find me on social media. I'm pretty active on there these days. Um, but my website is always where everything is going to go. Um, and I've been interviewed on a couple other podcasts and have had some articles published on Adventure Cycling Association's website. So anytime there's any press about me, I always put it back on my website. So that's where you can find um, my backstory, excerpts from my book, and also all of the interviews I've done with other lady cyclists. Um, I wrote a piece last week about public urination. <laughs> so I talk about some funny stuff in the life of a cyclist. Because sometimes you have to go and there's zero coverage. Um, and yeah, so you can find everything there. And um, also the Indiegogo campaign, it would be great to have more $5 donations from women I don't know. It's just so exciting to get the support of strangers. I can't mm. reiterate that enough. Um, so it may just be $5 to you, but to me it's like, oh my gosh, someone I don't even know believes in me. This is epic. It, yeah, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, it's so generous it's like 
quote, only $5 or only a dollar or whatever, but it just feels so generous when someone's, uh, you know, giving of their resources like that. Yeah. Yeah. It literally is a high five hug. It's great. A high five hug. Um, Okay. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Is there anything that we're missing or how would you like to wrap things up? Um, I just want to say thank you to everyone listening for um, being interested in women and bicycles. If you ride a bicycle, you're a rock star. If you don't, you are also a rock star because everybody needs to be safe on the road and find their way through this world in whatever means of transportation is most comfortable to them. Um, And I really appreciate all the women who've been sharing their stories in the interviews, in the Me Too movement, on your podcast, Kat. Um, And thank you so much for celebrating Women in Bicycles. I'm so honored to be here. You know, friends, I have this quote on my desk from Francis Willard. It says, the world is wide. And I will not waste my life in friction when it could be turned into momentum. And that is exactly what Olivia's story reminded me of. And that's pretty much how I feel about the brave women and men who are coming forward with all of these Me Too statements. You know, it takes a lot of courage to stand up in the face of systemically reinforced abuse. We're at a great crossroads right now. Um, This movement, you know, a a lot of respect for the people who are standing up from Hollywood to the world of sport. Patriarchy, you're on notice. Toxic masculinity, you're on notice. Abusers, you're on notice. Predators, you're on notice. Time's up, as they say. So a big thanks to Olivia for sharing her story with us. Make sure you go to her blog and check out all of those awesome interviews that she's done. Go to the show notes at thejoyridepodcast.com forward slash 034. Check out that awesome artwork. Take a look at her Indiegogo campaign. You very much might like what you see. It's probably up your alley. So check it out. Friends, if you enjoyed this story, please give us a shout on Instagram. You can catch uh, Olivia at around Olivia. And of course, the show is at the Joyride Podcast. Say hi. Show us what you're up to while you're listening to the show. Also, if you like what you heard, please consider sharing the show with someone who you think might also enjoy it. Leave a rating or a review wherever you're consuming this podcast. Also, um, if there's someone who you would love to hear on this show, please nominate a guest at bit.ly forward slash joyride guest. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash joyride guest. And if you like what's going on here, please consider contributing to the show. Go to thejoyridepodcast.com forward slash support and see how you can join the Joyride Nation. Okay, again, as always, I appreciate your time and your attention. Remember, friends, life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. Keep moving forward, and until next time, I hope you enjoy the ride.